I am Ben Galley, the author of the Heart of Stone, Emanesca series, and Scarlet Star trilogy, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings podcast. Listening to the Grim Tidings podcast. It's the Writer's Pit. I am your host, Rob Mathine. And I'm Philip Overby. Our guest today is an award winning author of 11 novels and one graphic novel. When not writing, he works as a self publishing consultant helping authors around the globe market and sell books. His latest dark fantasy novel, The Heart of Stone, was self published March 30th. Hailing from the UK and joining us on Skype from Victoria, Canada, the Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Ben Galley to the Writer's Pit. Ben, welcome to the show, sir. Hello. Thank you very much for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, delighted to have you on. It's been a while, actually, since we've done an episode of The Writer's Pit. For those not up to speed, this is where we talk about the extra gruesome details of publishing and writing and the nuts and bolts and businessy end of the book industry. And that's why I'm personally excited to have Ben Galley on today, because he knows his shit when it comes to this self-publishing game. Usually he charges for his consulting services, but we're just basically going to get as much free information as we can from Ben today for the low <laughs> price of zero dollars. Uh, but first, I want to talk about Ben's latest novel, The Heart of Stone, which he just self-published on March 30th. But even before that, he just moved from the UK all the way to Canada, North America. He, uh, and I wanted to ask Ben, how did the move go and what? To, why did you have such a drastic change in location? <laughs> well, it went pretty well. Thanks, Rob. I mean, it, it, was, uh, it was quite surreal to pack all of my things into about three cases and then just get on the plane and leave. <laughs> I've never done the whole traveling thing. I uh, never did a gap year. I just sort of uh, stuck around in the UK. So it's quite fun to do that. Um, but yeah, here I am in Victoria, loving it. Um, I can't complain. I mean, Canadians are kind of fulfilled. Well, they fulfill the stereotype of being really friendly and really nice. Uh, so yeah, that's that's one of the great things about being here. Landscape was another one. Uh, exchange rate is favorable. Of course, the government is pretty good compared to mine back home. Uh, it seems like every English person is just fleeing the country at the moment. Uh, but yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting, uh, well, hopefully being inspired by the landscape, animals and things like that. So yeah, Canadian fantasies. <laughs> that's what I'm going to be writing. Lots of bears and raccoons and that's it. <laughs> badgers and whatnot. Moose. Yeah. Moose. Moose, I was going to say, yeah, what else have we got here? <laughs> Otters, moose know, are pretty yeah, fucking like, dangerous too. Like more people get killed by like mooses than like bears and shit. So you got to watch out yeah. for them. Like the is it moose? Is it moose? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, moose sign. Meese, meese. <laughs> Next novel, Killer Moose from Canada. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, watch this space. Well, speaking of books, let's talk about uh, your latest novel, The Heart of Stone. Tell us maybe what inspired that story, and um, uh, would you classify maybe the novel as grimdark or dark fantasy? Uh, what would you say? I mean, I've always pitched myself as a dark fantasy author, but I think it might have strayed into the grimdark genre uh, on this one novel. Um, I mean, The Heart of Stone for me was kind of inspired by two different points. I mean, I wanted to do, firstly, a non-human protagonist, um, but I also wanted to talk about war. So the two kind of came together in the form of a golem, um, being, for me, the ideal war machine, uh, at the same time as someone who can look on humanity as something who's kind of human, uh, but not quite there, you know, unable to cross that gap to be fully human. Um, and I, I've always been fascinated by sort of golem mythology, uh, you know, the old sort of Jewish folklore of, go of golems. And so the idea of having something that's nine foot tall, made of stone, made to basically just <laughs> function up, you know, on a, on a battlefield, um, yet look human, sort of act human, talk like a human as well, was just perfect to, to, uh, to talk about war and to talk about humanity. Um, so that was the inspiration. And I think, you know, Task was uh, also the inspiration as well. As soon as I started thinking about him as a character, um, I was I was just hooked. It was, you know, some of these things just pop into your head and just won't leave. And he was definitely one of those. <laughs> uh, and so as soon as I th sort of thought about him and his history and what he could do and also start coming up with the world, uh, I was just hooked. I had to write it. Absolutely had to write it. So, yeah, that's essentially what inspired the story. I definitely say it's, I mean, it's very dark. <laughs> lots of skull crushing, mm. lots of warfare. Um, I mean, it is, a, it is a book about war. So, I mean, the theme is a dark one straight off. Uh, and it is being told by someone who's 400 years old and has seen all the shades of war, you know, possible. 
Um, and, you know, at the same time, every other character is out for themselves. <laughs> so, you know, uh, the intentions of the characters are dark, essentially. And it's, it's a long war as well. You know, nine years old, the country is just completely screwed up. <laughs> Landscape is just pretty much mist and skeletons. <laughs> so it's very grim, very dark. Yeah, that sounds pretty, pretty damn grim, especially skull crushing is always cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, one-handed skull crushing as oh. well. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> nice. yeah, there's, it's quite a fun scene to write. I mean, even, even though I've written some dark scenes before, there was a moment of going, oh, is this too far? <laughs> the answer to that is never, never too far. Never too far. <laughs> yeah, Task is the name of the golem. He sounds very, very cool. What sort of research did you go into creating that golem character? Um, weirdly enough, I researched a lot into how much pressure does it take to crush a human skull. <laughs> I spent a good like, day and a half trying to find that out. Um, but I mean, I, I researched into a lot of mythology, uh, again, Jewish folklore, um, and also sort of, um, you know, popular culture with golems as well. And, you know, cause it, it's kind of weird because in my mind, he was instantly the thing from Fantastic Four. So I watched mm. all the different Fantastic Fours that I could just to sort of get an idea of things like movement and, you know, how you know, small things are done, um, you know, small movements and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and then, yeah, so I sort of molded all that together and mashed the mythology with a bit of popular culture. And at the same time, kind of came up with my own thing that, um, you know, for instance, he, even though he's damaged, he can sort of almost telepathically or, um, uh, what's the word? Telekinetically, uh, pull back his sort of shards to him and his stones and anything that's been cut off of him at the time. So he's you know, truly indestructible in a way. So I've added my own little twist to it, um, especially to his history and the way that he's been made as well. Um, but yeah, a lot of lot of research. Um, even that's the thing with fantasy. <laughs> even though it's a completely made up world, you still do a huge amount of research into the real world. So fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, this is a standalone book, so. It's interesting that a lot of fantasy tends to be uh, series heavy. Uh, so what is what was the decision to write a standalone this time? And do you find it easier or more difficult to fit all the story into one book? It was definitely more difficult. <laughs> I mean, I've got two series under my belt and I'm, I've still got short stories and things that I want to cram into those worlds to tell more of the story that I couldn't fit into the books. So, you know, I'm definitely one for having you know, a lot to talk about, <laughs> but narcissistic, but yeah, uh, you know, I want to put a lot of information. I love world building. That's sort of my, I think my strengths. Um, so it was part challenge to me to see if I could fit one whole story into just one book rather than going off on, on, <laughs> on tangents and, you know, creating series. And even now I'm, you know, fighting not to write a sequel. Um, I've already written a short story that's hopefully going to be out in a month's time, but I mean, it's yeah, it's it's quite a struggle to try and keep it a standalone. Um, but I mean, one of my biggest, um, I say yeah, one of my biggest inspirations is American Gods, which has obviously just been televised, which is amazing. Um, but the novel itself, I read uh, I think about seven years ago, and it was one of the things that inspired me to get back into writing and to actually make a, a go of it professionally. And for me, I mean, it was a great example of a standalone book. And even you know, Neil Gaiman has, has done the same and sort of said, you know, I'm not going to write a sequel. Um, at the same time, I think the TV show might actually make him <laughs> write a sequel. <laughs> but he's done it, you know, in a perfect way where, you know, the, the story arc starts and finishes in the same book, answers most of the questions, but still leaves you wanting more, which I think is, a, you know, a great thing. You know, you don't want, you still want a little bit of cliffhanger <laughs> to keep people intrigued. Um, and so I wanted to challenge myself and see whether I could do it. And at the same time, I mean, the story arc of Heartstone, without well, trying to keep it spoiler free, is quite self-contained. I mean, there is a definite end to the storyline. So I wanted to stick to that. Uh, and I mean, yeah, it ended up being a lot bigger than I thought it would be. <laughs> I thought I was going to go through quite a short book. Um, it still ended up quite chunky. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think, yeah, part challenge and part just a necessity of tasks, a story arc. Did you find yourself kind of um, cutting down words? Was that a challenge for you? Was having the story be too long since you're used to writing longer series? Did you have to kind of pare things down to keep this story self-contained? Oh, absolutely. I think I cut about 30,000 to 40,000 words out of it. It was going to be an absolute beast and, um, yeah, <laughs> really cut it down. And I rewrote the ending as well quite a few times because I just wasn't happy with it. So that ended up being quite different and ended up cutting about 10,000 words out of it by the end. And my editor is brutal as well in a great way, <laughs> but he took another, I think, 10,000 out of it. And yeah, it was, it was really tough to try and answer every question and wrap it up, but also in a, in a sort of, um, I would say not keeping it, well, keeping it away from being a doorstop book and 
having it as something that's readable you know 150 is the target i want to aim for so yeah <laughs> did cut quite a chunk out of it that cover is beautiful um sean king who we've mentioned I mm -hmm. think, many times on the show before. Um, <laughs> Where's that buzzer? You need a Sean King buzzer, sorry. <laughs> right? <laughs> we do a sound effect every time we mention him because he does so much uh, cover cover artwork. But uh, he did the cover, and that cover is sexy as hell. It looks amazing. Yeah. Grabs the attention uh, right away. Um, uh, what sort of work did you put into that cover? I, I mean, <laughs> I'd be taking quite a lot away from Sean if I said any. Because <laughs> I, I just sent him, like, you know, I think uh, – yeah, I sent him the intro where Task gets off this barge and sort of enters the story. I mean, the start of the story is told from sort of not his perspective and just a sailor's perspective uh, who doesn't crop up in the story. Again, it's just used as a device to introduce him as someone who's never even heard of a golem. Uh, and so I sent him that scene where the sailor's just describing him and a couple of other scenes that I think clarified a bit more of the description. Uh, sent him a bit of my own description and said, here's a couple of ideas. I don't think he kind of went for any of them he just went for his own idea and it just worked out perfectly so i mean yeah it was it was just great to give it to him and sort of hand it over um i mean i tried <laughs> i tried to sort of give direction i mean most of my cover designs um just end up being something scrawled on the back of a napkin and then very terribly described <laughs> i've just had the luck of working like <laughs> working with uh, designers like sean uh, and a couple of other people beforehand who just have the skill um and I think the wherewithal to just ignore me and go, yeah, I get it. I want it. <laughs> so, yeah, he did a great job. And it's constantly my desktop background. And I might even frame the thing. Right. <laughs> I'm going to be doing, yeah, merch and things like that with it. And it's brilliant. He's actually currently working on the short story cover as well, which is for anyone who's a big fan of the Golem, obviously Task, um, is going to have a lot more Golems on it as well. So we're going to hopefully see a bit more of Task sort of brethren and things like that on the cover, which I cannot wait for. <laughs> I saw just looking at my email inbox every day, like, uh, come on, I want to see it. <laughs> is there any chance you mentioned you don't want to write a sequel, but mm. is there any chance chance of like doing a pulling an Abercrombie and like going back and exploring the same world, but maybe not with the same characters per se, but just go back and kind of fuck up another part of the world <laughs> with some <laughs> different characters. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely, I mean, the thing is like um, a couple of reviewers have said this since the launch, but I did put a lot of work into the world building. So for a standalone, it's a very, very large world and there's a lot of history that I wrote that, I mean, never made it into the book or didn't have to, or it's just hinted at. So, I mean, yeah, the short story charts that I've written um, is, uh, I mean, it's the features tasks. So it's very definitely in the vein of, of Hearthstone, but I think there are a few kind of areas of the world I want to explore. Um, and there's a kind of weird thing that I'm trying to do at the moment. I don't know if I can pull it off, <laughs> but we'll see of kind of joining all my books together into the same world. Um, and trying to do sort of, I don't know, um, a middle earth sort of thing where it's a prehistory deal. But, um, yeah, essentially, yes, I will be doing that. <laughs> it might be a thousand years later. Um, but either way, it's going to be yeah, in the world. I mean, it's the thing. I, I also put a lot of work into the characters and there's quite a large cast for the Heart of Stone, uh, especially for a standalone. So I think I might do kind of prequels or short story sequels where it takes the characters, you know, 10 years on or something like that. So they almost feel like different characters. Because, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> definitely got bitten by this book. Uh, and it's just stuck in my head. And I really want to explore it and explore the world. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of short stories are going to be coming out this year <laughs> and next year. So even though it's a standalone, readers who, who dig the book can look forward to more stories set in that universe. Mm, absolutely, yeah. I mean, like I said, Shards is hopefully going to be coming out within a month. That's um, set. But, I mean, it sort of follows on from a flashback that Task has in the book um and that scene just ends it just carries on so it tells a story of a, of a siege that he um undertakes and is part of where he's practically fired by catapult <laughs> over the walls which is a really fun scene to write um and so yeah i just wanted to follow that on and tell a bit more about the magic which was um kind of uh intentionally vague in the book as well so yeah that's quite fun to uh, to explore more of the magical side of it it seems to be a trend lately where um a lot of authors are kind of um linking all of their stories together into kind of one big expansive universe in the same mm. place. I've kind of seen that lately. Mm. Yeah. I think it's a cool trend. Mm -hmm. Didn't Brandon Sanderson say something like that recently where all of his stories are somehow connected and mm. the cosmic. it's the cosmic his universe. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's something that I've had because I mean, Emanesca series, my, my first um, debut series, 
was designed to be prehistory. I mean, Middle Earth, you know, for J.R. Tolkien, if you look at the, the atlases that he drew and things like that, he's, it's almost Pangaea or, you know, um, one of the sort of um, mega continents that we had between any of the ice ages we had, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. And that was his idea. So, I mean, there's nothing new, but I kind of want to steal it. And ever since Emanesca, I thought about that. Um, and Emanesca is designed to be sort of almost 15,000 years ago. Uh, between ice ages, that's why it's sort of <laughs> incredibly icy and cold, because uh, you know the world is in the grip of an ice age, uh, and the idea is that you know throughout the years and the you know, millennia going forward, their histories or you know possible histories before have just been completely destroyed and buried, and we can never reach them. So you know who knew, who knows what came beforehand, and that was the kind of main inspiration for Emanesca. Uh, I mean, yeah, stolen from J.I.R. J.I.R. brother. <laughs> But yeah, kind of, uh, it's, it's quite fun. I think it's a cool trend though. I think it's quite interesting to see how, cause I mean, you know, you could span thousands and thousands of years with just a couple of books. So you can really tell, you know, the, the kind of, um, I would say the, the evolution of, a, of an entire world. I think it's, yeah, again, just authors messing around with the, their creations. <laughs> but I mean, that's how we get books. So, you know, more power to them. I think a lot of old authors used to, do stuff like that too like robert e howard had a conan was his biggest mm. thing and he did a lot of stories based in that same world and uh jack vant who i started uh reading recently you know the diner is his biggest thing but he had other smaller things so i think authors have always kind of done things along this line but i think it's becoming more of a trend now that people are more interconnecting various stories and it's making it like one big magnus opus almost like their their greatest work yeah so i think that's <laughs> cool that everyone is sort of aiming for that i think so yeah and it's definitely i mean it's, it's pushing me to do the same thing i mean my new book is starting well i say new book it's, it's turning into a series slowly but surely <laughs> i can't I aim for another standalone i can't quite do it this time for some reason um but yeah i mean that even that's I, I find myself hinting to things in Heart of Stone and stuff like that. Can I join these two together? Is that too much? Because <laughs> I do tend to kind of create di well, very different books from series to series. I do sort of, uh, yeah, try different tangents in different areas um, whenever I, I tackle a new project. Um, but yeah, let's see if I can <laughs> if I can blend this in. <laughs> yes, fantasy series are definitely a trend. You've got the Emanesca series with the written Pale Kings and Dead Stars Part 1 and 2. You also have the uh, Scarlet Star trilogy, including Blood Rush, Blood Moon, and Blood Feud. And uh, folks can head over to Amazon and actually pick up complete omnibuses of both of those series if they want to just yeah. get all the Ben Galley that they can handle, um, <laughs> for sure. Ben John Galley. <laughs> a Galley binge. <laughs> Um, so yeah, folks can check out those, uh, past series and you've got kind of diversity. The, the Emanesca series is more fantasy and then the Scarlet Star is kind of, uh, got a Western kind of lean to it, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, the Emanesca series was full on epic fantasy, very Nordic. Um, I mean, it's got a, a bit where they go into a desert. <laughs> so there's a few sort of Greek and North African influences mm -hmm. at one point in Pale Kings, but yeah, mostly Nordic. And then as soon as I finished that, I thought I want to do something completely different. And it wasn't because I was bored of that. I just wanted to explore and obviously the ideas, you know, get stuck in your head. Um, and I, at the time sort of got back into Dark Tower and reread that, uh, and a couple of other sort of Western things as well. Um, and also Nunslinger. Um, by Stark Holborn as well. I was reading that and I just got sort of infused by this Western idea. Uh, and so, yeah, that was the Scarlet Star trilogy. So a completely different direction from the Emanesca series. Uh, I brand it as, I mean, it crosses quite a few genres, <laughs> but in the simplest form, I'd just say Weird West. Um, but it's a little bit steampunk. Uh, it's alternate history at the same time. So I've screwed around with 1867 history so much so that my friend in America, uh, who lives out in Philadelphia, kind of amateur historian, couldn't read it. <laughs> he got so annoyed with the, uh, with the sort of differences. You know, Lincoln's still alive. Um, uh, I think you know, I just kind of, I wouldn't say shat all over American history, not at all. <laughs> I would say respectfully twisted it because I mean, I'm a big, you know, big fan of American history and history in general. So <laughs> even though I've twisted a few things, I've tried to stay uh, respectful and sort of have an explanation for it and not just do it for the sake of it. Um, but he just, he couldn't read it for some reason. I think he was just like, nope, don't get it. <laughs> but yeah, so a little bit of a steampunk world. Um, it basically, the world is very similar to ours, but at the same time, it's, it's sort of peeled off around the Roman Empire sort of time. 
uh, and magic has heavily influenced um, sort of well the Renaissance was a magical Renaissance and it just carried on through um, you know the centuries until it hits the 1800s. So it's where magic hits um, technology. So that's where you get the steampunk steampunk influence. But it's a very magical book, even more so than the Imanesca series, which is focused on a mage and a very magical world. Uh, and even Blood Rush is sort of uh, is the name of the magic system as well, Blood Rushing. So yeah, a bit of a different direction, but really fun to write. <laughs> yeah. Writing steam trains and airships was, oh, it's, yeah, I've always wanted to squeeze that in. And then the <laughs> Scarlet Star trilogy was a great excuse to do it. Well, damn it, I just want to buy all your books now. <laughs> Thanks, man. Well, I'm not going to stop you, man. <laughs> <laughs> and we were going to talk about Spiffbo a little bit. That's the self-publishing fantasy blog-off. It's a little contest thing put together by Mark Lawrence. And your book, uh, Blood Rush, actually won second place in Spiffbo 2015, um, beating out uh, some pretty stiff competition in the self-publishing realm so you definitely know your shit um what sort of benefit can something like the self-publishing fantasy blog off have for an author or what direct impact did it have on you to be on that contest i mean for me it was it was amazing for several reasons i mean first off you're getting reviewed by bloggers that you know or book uh, book bloggers and book reviewers that might not have taken you on board you know obviously a lot of people have uh, a lot of requests all the time and they can't, you know, uh, take a, yes. a lot of books on. They can't take every single book on. So, you know, it's, it's a great way to get in the door, so to speak. Uh, at the same time, it's, it's, it's amazing for just awareness. And obviously a lot of people follow the, the SPFBO hashtag. I can't quite bring myself to say spiff, spiffbo yet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I'm getting there. I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm just an acronym junkie. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, the awareness of it, a huge amount of people follow the hashtag, and obviously a lot of industry people follow the hashtag as well. So, I mean, we've seen uh, deals come out of SPFBO 1 and 2 already, um, you know, and, and really good deals as well. So, it's it's amazing from that point of view. And the thing is, you know, a lot of people look at the top 10 and just instantly add the top 10 to the TBR as well. Uh, and even, you know, all the 300 books, to be honest, I mean, we've had, uh, well, we've got 300 books in the, in the new SPF, yeah, Spiffbo. I'm going to have to say it, aren't I? Yeah, Spiffbo. <laughs> Spiffbo. <laughs> Spiffbo. Oh. I like, I think, like, it's growing on me. But yeah, so we've got 300 books in the new Spiffbo, uh, which is amazing. And a lot of people just take the, that 300 as well, you know, without waiting, <laughs> waiting for the, for the reviewers, um, you know, opinions. So it's amazing for that sort of sense, you know, get self-published uh, authors out there. It shows people what they're capable of in terms of, you know, professional cover design, editing, and obviously storytelling at the core. Um, yeah, it gets you read by incredible reviewers, uh, well-respected reviewers as well. And at the end of it, if you do get into the final 10, I mean, yeah, you've got the agents looking, you've got publishers hopefully looking as well. Um, not that I think self-publishing is a precursor to traditional publishing. You know, I don't think it's a step, well, I wouldn't say it's a rung on the ladder to traditional publishing. I think it's a standalone uh, path in itself. But, I mean, a lot of authors out there self-publish to be noticed by traditional publishers. So it's incredible for that. Uh, and I think, you know, Mark's done a great job, but as he rightly said in his uh, blog post when he announced SPFBO3, Sorry, Smith Bow Three. <laughs> you know, it's it's more about the reviewers. You know, they're doing a lot of work. So I think it's you know it's a great effort by them as well, and it's you know great to have such great reviews involved. And you've got uh, the Heart of Stone currently in the running for Smith Bow 2017. So we'll see how that turns out. And yeah. we, we're actually going to have a panel episode coming up for listeners who are interested. We're going to have a panel featuring authors, the top three authors from Smith Bow 2016, um, including Dirk Ashton. Um, Phil Tucker, um, Jonathan French, and we're going to get uh, Laura M. Hughes, the blogger from Fantasy Faction as well. It's going to be a huge fucking episode, but we're going to talk <laughs> all about Spiffbo uh, coming up. So listeners, uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and keep an ear out for that. But uh, yeah, good luck to you with uh, the Heart of Stone uh, in the running for 2017. I'm sure you've got some stiff competition, but uh, from all I can tell, it's going to be, um, I say, top 10. So we'll see how. Hopefully so. We'll see. Yeah. If not, crossed. I'll just bribe people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> little bribery goes a long way. Yeah, that's it. A little bottle of whiskey, a little care package here and there. <laughs> Day out. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna call it a. Uh, I'm gonna call it Spiffbo. Okay. I don't want to call it Spiffbo. I'm gonna call it Spiffbo. <laughs> so we can decide how to pronounce it. Hashtag Spiffbo. Hashtag Spiffbo. It could be a Spiffbo. Spiffboo. Yeah, yeah. Spiffboo. I, mean. <laughs> I like Spiffboo. I'm going with that. Spiffboo. Yeah, let's do it. Let's make it a thing. Um, we've had a few. We've had a few guests on in the past and talked about self-publishing, and uh, it seems 
it seems a lot of people are just kind of throwing shit at the walls and see what sticks kind of thing. Mm, uh, yeah. I, I've li- <laughs> I've literally done that. I've literally thrown shit at the walls. Um, <laughs> it didn't work, but, um, <laughs> since you are a consultant for self publishers, when would you say is a good time for someone who's self publishing to approach uh, someone like you who is an who is an expert in the field and can guide them in the right direction? Uh, hmm. Should they should they go it alone for a little while and see how it goes before they reach out to somebody like you about uh, consulting? I definitely say a bit of sort of early research is is uh, advised. I mean, the thing is, there's a lot of bad information out there. Um, even now, you know, that self-publishing has become sort of almost standardized. It's become a recognized path. There's still a lot of information out there that's just bad, that's just you know, completely misleading, or it's one person's experience and they've, you know, it's worked for them and their book and their genre, but it not necessarily, well, it wouldn't necessarily translate to another uh, author. So, I mean, do a bit of research, but, you know, with a hefty pinch of salt, um, and a bit of general research into sort of the path and you know how it works and things like that. I mean, that sort of information is easy to find and hard to get wrong. But normally I work with authors who are just starting out in terms of uh, they've got their manuscripts and they are ready to go. You know, they might have done a couple of uh, drafts and things like that. So the next person that they're going to show it to would be a professional, um, you know, professional editor and proofreader. So, I mean, that's the sort of stage that I, that I help authors um, and it's, um, it's obviously, I mean, help authors with the entire sort of spectrum of self-publishing, including marketing. But I think that's the point where I can offer the most. You know, I can I can tell them exactly how their path is going to be laid out or could be laid out. I can tell them all the different professionals that they need, uh, when to engage with them, how to engage with them, and that sort of thing. So, you know, at that point is is probably where I'd recommend you know, consulting a professional or you know uh, finding a very very good advice resource and reading it to death. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of research to be done with self-publishing because you can go wrong. There are quite a few providers out there who are just complete cowboys and will just treat you like an object on a conveyor belt. Uh, not going to name any names. Don't want any lawsuits. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they are out there. They're quite large companies as well. Um, but yeah, you are just sort of, you know, shoved onto a conveyor belt and you're just an object on it and you go through the the uh, air quotes editing stage which is like yeah that's a thing running through spell checker essentially um and at the end of it they price your book so high that you can't resell it and it leaves you in a really um disadvantaged well i would say disadvantaged point in the market and you know diy self-publishing therefore can just control that so easily because it's just the power in your hands you get to control exactly you know where you publish how you publish uh obviously what you publish as well and choose who you work with. And so that's what I try and bring to authors is show them what they can do themselves and also with the help of professionals um, to achieve just maximum royalties. You know, they're taking the biggest slice of the pie possible. Uh, and I think, you know, that's the secret to professional self-publishing and actually making a go of it. So, yeah, I'd say normally manuscript stage, um, maybe just about to publish. You know, if people have, I've got a lot of authors who have had it, uh, their manuscript edited and maybe have a cover design as well. And they're ready to actually start the, the mechanics of publishing, such as you know the uploads, etc. Um, you know, preparing things for print, um, and that's that's a good stage as well. So I think yeah, somewhere between there would be perfect. Have you thought of publishing a, a book about the process at all? I know there are a lot of uh, books on Amazon that are like how to get 500 <laughs> million sales in three <laughs> weeks or shit like that. Yeah. But I think you could actually offer. Uh, you know, due to your experience, you could offer oh. a lot of good information. I produced one, I think it was 2014, was it 2014? Yeah, called Shelf Help, A Complete Guide to Self-Publishing. Um, the reason you might not have seen it is because I've recently taken it off of Amazon to update it for a 2017-18 version because it's a little oh. bit outdated. Self-publishing just changes instantly. Mm. So <laughs> uh, I remember releasing it and obviously having screenshots in the book of certain publishing dashboards and things like that. And I think the week I released it, one major retailer did a huge uh user interface change so my book was i think out of date the week i published it <laughs> which is great fun <laughs> so yeah i've been the bullet and i'm taking it off to to do a complete rehaul of it uh sorry complete overhaul of it um and so yeah that'll probably be out later this year um and it has the complete process uh a couple of real you know cheesy jokes in as well you know for those people who like terrible puns um <laughs> it's all sort of written as a, a friendly guide to the entire thing as well as marketing so yeah, that's uh, that should be out later on. I've got a couple of online courses as well um, that you can find on my site. So yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of material out there that I can offer. Um, but yeah, it's you know, it's definitely a plan for do well, definitely a plan for me to get the the guide back out later this year. 
Yeah, there's plenty of uh, self-published authors who listen to the show, so if they're interested in uh, finding out more, shelfhelp.info is the website they can check out, or bengalley.com is your website for folks who want to uh, further investigate that, and we'll look forward to that Shelf Help book coming up on Amazon later in the year. Um, and you actually got into the self-publishing game in 2010, kind of where the uh, shit hit the fan self-publishing-wise. What made mm-hmm. you decide to, to pursue self-publishing versus traditional publishing? I mean, I came from the music industry as a background, and I, prior to self-publishing, I spent uh, about three years, probably more than that, actually, um, trying to be a self-sustained musician, um, either doing sort of, I, I played bass, and so I'd either be doing function bands or I'd actually try and do original music in um, disgusting, filthy metal bands and <laughs> a funk band here and there, which is always fun. Um, but yeah, so I tried doing uh, the, the music scene before I did writing, um, even though I, I wrote when I was way back. You know, I wrote my first book when I was sort of uh, 11, 12, 13. Um, and so I'd always had the writing in me, but I just got distracted by music. But I'd been learning how to be the self-sustaining, independent musician for a couple of years and so when i decided to sack it off <laughs> and go into writing instead and sort of you know um reinvigorate that dream of being an author um it there's a parallel well multiple parallels that i could see between sort of indie music industry and indie publishing as it was starting to emerge i mean even though there's a lot of information around now i mean there's almost zero information and zero good information back in 2010 but I could still see this element of um, you know, self-sustainability, but also being able to uh, sort of approach it entrepreneurially and be a business and be sort of this one-man band. And it, it really suited me. I mean, that's why I wanted to be, you know, the independent musician and um, survive off of creative art like that. But for some reason, it just wasn't working for me. And I tried and I tried, and it just wasn't what I wanted it to be so I mean books for some reason it seemed to me that the self-publishing wave was just breaking whereas the sort of independent music or independent musician wave had already broken and and sort of gone Um, so it seemed like the right time I had the skills for it from music college uh, and music university and I thought you know why not make a go of it Uh, at the same time I managed to uh, obviously realize the need for professionals and things like that so it was really fun saying you know having the say of what goes on my cover how the book is well I say edited to my shame, I did not edit my first book professionally. I have since. <laughs> but I was a poor, poor musician at that point, so I couldn't afford it. Uh, so I used beta reading instead. However, you know, the idea of um, using professionals uh, and being this, you know, one-man band just appealed to me so much, um, and that creative control appealed to me so much as well. And the thing is, you do cut out middlemen. You do cut out, obviously, the ten to fifteen to twenty percent that an agent takes. Uh, you also cut out a publisher as well, so you get the entire amount. Um, of the book sale so financially it suited me better as well because I just wanted to get out of these dead-end jobs that I was working in pasty kiosks and bars and restaurants and things like that while trying to do music so I mean I was adamant that I was going to do that and uh, I'm pleased to say that I have several years on <laughs> it took a while but yeah I mean just self-publishing just ticked every box for me for those reasons and at the same time you know I could say what I published when I mean that's the thing that's why I switched genres so quickly after Romanesca and went into Weird West and Ultimate History it's just because I could you know, um, not in sort of a, a bragging way, <laughs> but I know a lot of authors who would love to write X, Y, and Z and can't because the publisher only wants, you know, just the X. And so it's, it's great to have that freedom as a self-publisher. Uh, and you do lack a few things like an advance, um, obviously the, the ability to get into a lot of mainstream bookstores. Uh, there's a lot of you know, marketing power behind um, a lot of publishers as well. So you do miss out on that, but there are, you know, the benefits sort of outweigh those, I think, a little bit. Um, and I think it's, I just like it being down to me, <laughs> I like being in control. Um, it sounds a little OCD, but <laughs> I think that is one of the best parts of it because it's just, it's your say. Um, I've always been a bit entre- entrepreneurial and trying to release you know, businesses after business. <laughs> and so it just suited me from that perspective as well. We've talked to a few people about marketing and uh, it's like uh, asking people, what's the meaning of life or something? <laughs> it's just <Yeah>. everyone... <laughs> Everyone's kind of like, eh. Of course, the newbie's guide to marketing it would be, uh, hey, my book's out. <laughs> yeah. And do that about 20 times a day. Um, mm-hmm. But it seems like I've never been able to get a completely straight answer for in, from anyone about marketing as a, as a self-published person. Mm. You know, what can you do? And you, the usual answers are go on social media, mm-hmm. uh, engage, engage with people. And that's about it. 
but it, it seems <laughs> like there must be more than that. that <laughs> there definitely is. Missing. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite lucky in the fact that I was employed as a marketer for a couple of businesses um, while I was trying to uh, go full time on books. Um, so for the last sort of five years, I've been working in marketing in general. So I mean, I'm kind of cheating <laughs> a little bit, um, in being that I, you know, I've got a little bit of a head start. But for me, marketing is all about evoking a reaction in someone. I think that's the general rule that I live by. So if I can produce a tweet or a blog post or a video that evokes a reaction in someone, and that reaction could be laughter, it could be um, just an affinity for what I'm doing, it could be you know, a cause that I'm talking about, it could be sadness, you know, that's why people share things. They have a reaction to something and they go, I want other people to have this reaction. So that's the entire basis of social media um, and, and content marketing. So that's why I focus heavily on content um, and evoking that reaction wherever I can. Obviously the core for an author is the fact that your book is you know your main vehicle and uh, that's what you're marketing that obviously is going to evoke hopefully if you if you've written it right <laughs> a lot of emotion in the reader so, so you start with that you know you use excerpts things like that content from your book you might produce external content like short stories things like that once you talk about your book talk about why you wrote it so you've got all that sort of content that you can produce but then you've got aside from that all the content you can produce as an author you know what you're writing next how did you come up with the most current book you know um day-to-day -day life writing spots things like that so you sort of create in my in my mind you create this sort of um well you create a brand essentially um, and i don't i don't mean in the sort of you have to sit down and figure out your fonts and your your color profiles and things like that i think a brand is a very natural thing it's just how you you know conduct yourself online it's the sort of books you write and yeah fair enough your website might be red <laughs> you know, that's the brand um you know i don't think a huge amount of effort needs to be put into a brand i think that's leaves that for big brands essentially so i mean that's how i see an author marketing and then in that you might kind of tab on paid marketing so pushing that content that you're producing such as your book or other um other content you know, you're pushing that book to other markets or other readers or other customers that you might not be able to reach um, you might try, you know, email, that sort of thing to keep those people that have already engaged with you, uh, even more engaged, and obviously buying next books and things like that. So yeah, it's kind of a, I mean, marketing is an amorphous blob, but I think if you approach it from one theory of marketing and mine is the evoking of a reaction. Um, I think if you approach it from that, other things kind of stack up behind it and you sort of get this, I mean, it still probably will stay amorphous, but you will get a little more sense out of it. Um, and then it's just sort of putting a process behind it, or at least sort of um, in a time scale. So for me, I know that, you know, I know I have daily tasks, I know I have weekly tasks, monthly tasks. You know, I describe certain things as, you know, just daily marketing and then big projects. Um, and, you know, it's just sort of getting into that flow, figuring out what works, which does take time. A lot of people think they can put out one tweet and be a bestseller. Um, and at maybe one time that was true. <laughs> Thing for one person one time only and then since then it's never been true um and so you know a lot of people will just come into this industry and think they can do it instantly or overnight and the thing is overnight successes don't exist in my opinion you know if you look at every overnight success there's been about you know two or three years of nights beforehand before they suddenly just exploded onto the you know the, the public scene um so i mean yeah there is a there's a point to reach to where you can well there's a point to reach where you can achieve critical mass but it does take time. So that's one of the biggest things that I say to my authors uh, when I'm talking to uh, to them about marketing. So yeah, a lot of work, but I approach it from one theory only and just stick to that and obviously just have that goal as well. So yeah, that's how I approach marketing. <laughs> Hopefully it's maybe shed a bit more light. I don't know. I feel like I just rambled. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that makes sense uh, as far as not necessarily thinking about marketing directly, but kind of indirectly marketing yourself in a way. Um, yeah. I think what I tend to do, uh, I've self-published a few things, but they're all short stories. So I think mm -hmm. that's limited me to a certain degree, but I tend not to talk about them anymore. Uh, when I first came out, I was like, hey, get my fucking stories guys <laughs> if you don't get my stories then you're a bastard you know? you're not my friend yeah um you're but <laughs> but now i don't i don't really say anything i just uh you know i just exist and i <laughs> and then sometimes people may say hey i read your story just suddenly people say and then i'm like oh i'm not even talking about it anymore <laughs> so it's kind of <laughs> weird that things kind of work that way where Ooh just existing is enough sometimes i guess you can i mean a lot of a lot of authors have had quite a lot of success from just existing or i mean i call it 
just organic marketing, i.e. just being there and letting it happen organically. Um, yeah, and quite a few authors have done that. And again, that comes down to the strength of your book, which is always why I say that the number one key to marketing is write a good fucking book. <laughs> you know, just this is the thing. I mean, talking about content and evoking a reaction, the book is going to do that. So if you can nail it, and you can get everyone talking about your book. I mean, another secret to what I do, well, I say secret, it's not a secret, because I tell people about it all the time. <laughs> but in terms of another sort of um, you know, like core principle of my marketing is getting people talking about my book for me. So not that I don't have to market, but they're doing the marketing for me, which is obviously uh, countless times better than me bleating about it on social media. If someone goes, hey, dude, buy this book, it's great. That means so much more than me going, buy my book, buy my book on Twitter, which I never do. <laughs> I always say to people that you should not do. But yeah, word of mouth marketing um, is so important. I think, I mean, that's kind of almost the sequel, if you will, to what I'm trying to, the reason I'm trying to evoke a reaction is I want people talking about what I'm sharing, be that my book, my content, mm -hmm. or me. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, organic can work, but it has to rely on a very, very good book. <laughs> That's a good point. So aside from the the spam approach for marketing of getting on Twitter and tweeting mm. 600 times a day that you have a book for sale, <laughs> aside from that, Ben Galley, what's the biggest kind of error that you see self-published authors doing today? Creating their own covers. I mean, it's, mm. it's an oldie but a goldie. <laughs> <laughs> it's just people, I'm, I feel bad because I mean, I get a lot of clients who come to me with a book cover that they've made or something like that. And it's 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 really difficult to say and especially as I'm, I'm not a designer and not an artist, I mean, you should see the things I sketch there. They should be imprisoned, or I should be imprisoned for throwing <laughs> them. <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's a horrible part of my job, but at the same time, I'm kind of hopefully doing people a favor and saying, you know, this is not market quality. But a lot of authors think that it's okay to just simply drag an, in, uh, an image off the internet, which is obviously legally not okay to start off. <laughs> um, you know, just Google imaging something, taking it off, and sticking it on a product that they're selling with a bit of word art on it, or, or not even word art, just Times New Roman. And that happens a lot, and that's what's given self-publishers a bad name over the last five to ten years, is, you know, it's just low quality. I think book covers as well, I mean, obviously, I could talk about editing at the same time, but I think book covers being the first point of contact for your book are, I think, kind of edge ahead in terms of importance on editing, even though editing is incredibly important as well. Um, but I mean, book covers is everyone makes a decision instantly in their head on design and things like that, whether we like to admit it or not. And so that's why I think book covers just slightly edge ahead of editing. Um, and so it's so important to get an incredible looking book cover or at least an eye catching book cover. And a lot of people just don't do it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I can do that. I've got a bit of design. No, no, you don't. <laughs> I always say that the rule of thumb is if you're not employed as a professional designer, or self-employed as a professional designer, or I would even go as far as to say as professional book cover designer, don't. <laughs> don't touch your own cover. I've, I, we've all done it. I've, for Blood Rush, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to just gonna try. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, was, it was about two hours wasted of my time, but at the same time, I realized that, no, I should never, ever touch a book cover in my life. And so I'm leaving it to people like Sean King. Bring the buzzer. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. How much do you think a uh, self-published author would expect to spend on a quality cover what should they usually budget for something like that Ooh, i think i mean in terms of i think an average number that could be applied to both dollars and pounds and hopefully you know other types of dollars as well i would say you can expect to spend anywhere between 300 and 600 uh hopefully that stacks or that hopefully that works out over currencies but i think yeah that's that's what you can expect to pay i normally um, work with american designers anyway so i normally would pay in that region you obviously can go um, you can go more expensive if you want. <laughs> you know, people pay a thousand, thousand pounds and a thousand bucks for their cover. Um, it all depends on the designer, really, and what type of art, whether you're sort of doing photo and text manipulation over original digital artwork or even, you know, painted artwork that's then scanned. It all depends on the complexity as well. But I think generally speaking, um, and using a bit of research that, um, a company called Reedsy did on sort of the average price that their marketplace charges for, Cover design, I think, yeah, 300 to five, uh, 300 to 600 is a good range. Is that usually a one-time deal, like you just pay that uh, artist for the cover and then it's yours forever and they don't get any royalties off of it or anything? Some designers will work on that basis. A lot of uh, designers who uh, work a, you know, 
I would say, solely produce book covers and for very kind of large clients like publishers or very successful authors, they might say that they keep the rights and the fee is actually more of a license. I mean, that mm. can happen. So I always say to you know, authors I work with, always check with a designer how, you know, on the basis that they work on uh, work, work with. Um, but I'd say that you know, it's, it's usually, rule of thumb is once you pay for it, that artwork is yours. But you always have to check. Um, mm. I mean, designers work in loads of different ways. Uh, so you always have to check, but yeah, I'd say usually it's yours. Um, and you, I mean, you do want it to be yours because you want to kind of manipulate it for marketing. You might want to make banners, other things, you know, change colors of it, that sort of thing. So it's definitely worthwhile having it, uh, having the rights essentially to your own artwork. Do you think there's a, there's a good amount of money that you should spend as a first time author on, on building your, for lack of a better term, I guess, uh, Ocean's Eleven or whatever, the, the group that's going to build your book for you or, or your, the team, uh, because I think uh, having a good cover is good. But it seems like nowadays also people are kind of building a professional team around their book where they hire a professional editor. They get a they may even get a publicist to help them or, or whatever the case may be. But how much would you say? you know, a first time author should spend on everything altogether if they're really trying to give it a honest go. Mm. Yeah, it's I mean, again, speaking sort of generally, but I think you can expect to spend about a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars mm. or pounds. I mean, it's you need to spend money. I mean, I always say that the most expensive part of self publishing is actually just the publishing stage. Sorry, not the publishing stage, the polishing stage. Um, whereby, you know, you are polishing your word file, essentially into something that can be sold and that that requires a lot of work and it requires a lot of professional know-how and so you should always 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 pay for professionals at that stage um i mean i I break publishing down into polishing publishing and promotion the three p's as i call it Um, and so i mean yeah that's the stage that's going to cost the most is the first stage and that's where you're going to engage a professional cover designer a professional editor i'm going to keep saying professional because (laughs) they need to be professional um, you know, professional formatter or and or typesetter. Some people do both, so it might be the same person. Um, but that's what you need to spend there. That's going to be about a thousand to fifteen hundred, possibly reaching up to two thousand, depending on length or complexity of your book. And obviously, like in cover designer as well, formatting and typesetting is normally uh, for most sort of just text-heavy books or text-centric books. Uh, that's going to be cheaper than editing cover design. Um, but obviously, if you're producing things like graphic novels or uh, you know complex layout books, you're going to be paying a bit more for that stage as well. Um, when it comes to things like publicists and having a professional team sort of in the marketing area, I mm, I take that with a big pinch of salt as well because I think you know sometimes you can do a lot of things yourself uh, mm. or learn a lot of things yourself without paying anyone any money. And I always think. I mean, I approach this from being a very, very poor person, (laughs) poor musician um, working uh, in a train station selling pasties. And so for me, it was I want to get out of this job, but I also have no money to spend. So I need to break even quicker or or quickly at least. And so that was my approach to self-publishing. It's it's kind of fed into my self-publishing method, the shelf help method, whereby the the trick is to break even as quickly as possible. And that sets you up. I'd say beneficially for a business as well as an author. So, I mean, you know, if your book is selling and you've broken even, it gives you more time and more money to work on this, on the second book or the third book, etc. So, I mean, that was yeah the governing principle for me. And I think if you're doing that in the marketing stage and you're throwing more money at it without trying things yourself for free, I think it's money could be spent better elsewhere. And I think hold off for a bit and maybe look at building that side of your marketing team or your author team a little bit down the road once you've had a bit of experience. Um, if, I was going to say, if you're going to spend any money on marketing when you're just first starting out, spend it on things like Facebook ads or Amazon marketing services, even Goodreads ads to a certain extent, or you know events and things like that. I think that's the better better thing to spend your money on when you're just starting out, and then look at what a publicist or a marketer or even things like a personal assistant can bring uh, to the table later on down the line. Good stuff. <clears throat> the three Ps. Three P's. P, P, and P. I'm always peeing. I'm peeing yeah. everywhere. Oh, Phil. <clears throat> well, we are we are almost out of time here, uh, Ben Galley. We've had a great conversation here. Uh, what are you currently working on and what's coming out next for you? I'm currently working on what was going to be another standalone. Uh, has now turned into a three-book series <laughs> called Chasing Braves. <laughs> Classic fantasy author. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just going to be a short story. No, nine book series. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's a brand new story, brand new world, sort of. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, <laughs> I might link it in, but a brand new world for me. Um, and it's based on the concept of enslaving ghosts as a global workforce. So it's all about ghosts and being one and life and death and things like that and gods. A bit of magic here and there, but it's actually going to be one of the first books that I don't really include a lot of magic at all. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm working on at the moment. I'm currently on book two of that and hopefully going to be releasing all three of them this year, sort of in a staggered one every month, hopefully towards the, the end of the year. Um, I'm also working on another, on another short story it's set in the Heart of Stone world uh, that's going to feature Lesky, one of the um, main characters. Um, sort of task sidekick. She's a little stable girl who's just full of <laughs> wise cracks and, and insults and sarcasm. So she's a great character to write with. So I'm going to hopefully put her into a short story. Uh, what else am I working on? I'm hopefully doing a choose your own adventure as well. Ooh. You heard it here first. Well, not quite. I put it on a vlog a little while ago. You heard it here second. <laughs> second, but more people might hear it this time. Who knows? <laughs> than my own vlogs. But either way, I'm trying to work on it, and it is it is difficult. I've bitten off a little bit more than I can chew in terms of the choices. <laughs> I think I've got about 300,000 possible choices at the moment, so I need to trim them back. But that's going to be set in a real world, um, going to be set in 1600s London, and I'm trying to make it the darkest choose-your-own-adventure you could possibly imagine. That's basically <laughs> going to be the tagline. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I'm sort of working on every now and again. I have a couple of beers and can be not bothered, Basically, I can overcome the fear of the complexity and tackle it. But yeah, that's what I'm working on at the moment. Excellent. And then nice. you're you just relocated to the North America. You just relocated to Canada. Um, I did from the UK. But I presume you don't have any con appearances coming up in North America soon. Unfortunately, or? not. No, I've sort of missed a couple that I really wanted to attend already. They've already been and gone. Um, I'm looking at a couple maybe towards the end of the year. Um, we'll just have to see with those. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, at the moment I am. Just going to be in my writing cave and wandering the streets of Victoria, <laughs> pestering people and waving my book in their faces. <laughs> I, I could just do my own con. I might do, you know, Victoria con or Vancouver Island con. Galley con. <laughs> Galley con. Yeah, just get, push that narcissistic boat straight out. <laughs> well, good shit, Ben Galley. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. You're on uh, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, MySpace. You're all over the place. So. I am. I'm like a disease, yeah, or a bad rash. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am indeed. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, MySpace is one that I think I've just left by the wayside. <laughs> um, yeah, no, most. I mean, yeah, the four you'd said them all. The four main profiles that I'm on: Facebook and Instagram as at Bengali Author, Twitter and YouTube as at Bengali, and then Bengali.com. And for authors who want to get some shelf health information, they can check out that and uh, check out your books on Amazon. Folks can uh, mm -hmm. check out the show notes and we'll have a link to pick up the Heart of Stone if they wanted to uh, pick up a copy. Um, but yeah, good shit, Ben Galley. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today and best of luck to you in all of your writerly endeavors there in Canada and good luck with everything. Thank you very much, Sherman. Been a pleasure. Good talking to you. We're at thegrimtidingspodcast.com on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. Be sure to check out our Facebook group, GrimDarkFiction, readers and writers, to get daily updates on all things Grimdark and rainbow jokey unicorn memes and all that fun stuff. Sure We're by. full of fucking unicorn memes. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Phil, thanks again for hanging out. Um, until next time, thanks for listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. Until then, stay grim, stay dark, stay true. We'll see you next time. Bye.